Welcome back to the High Impact Physician Podcast. This is part two of Sandy and Jason's conversation. They're digging a little deeper into a very personal story about a man who was supposed to be the best man at Jason's wedding. Very moving and an interesting takeaway here. Jason and Sandy are also digging into how physicians can recalibrate and adapt to their financial plans given the reality of things like furloughs during COVID-19. And they're also talking about how to deal with this really unique feeling right now of being understressed and overstressed at the same time. Hope you enjoy this conversation. Yeah, as you mentioned, it's chock full of stories. I'd love to have you share maybe another another real life scenario, another story that really impacted you. Yeah, so huh, this one gained a lot of national news back in 2013. And uh, it's in the first couple of chapters uh, to point people. But there was a there was a friend of mine who was supposed to be the best man at my wedding. His name was Chris Dorner. And the Chris Dorner story, depending on where you lived, especially if you were in Los Angeles back in 2013, it I've had people come up to me out of nowhere saying, hey, I saw a random picture of you on CNN with this guy named Chris Dorner that ended up killing several people in the shooting spree. And I said, yeah, well, that was me. I was in my Navy uniform back at his Los Angeles Police Academy graduation back in 2006. And, uh, and that was several years before the incident. But um, Chris was the best friend that I could have. And, and what's so hard when people hear that, they go, yeah, but you know, he ended up killing people. I said, well, that wasn't the Chris that I knew. And it's hard for people to understand where I'm coming from. That's why I wrote a decent amount of it in my book. I've blogged about it. I've been interviewed about it. Um, this was a guy who had a heart of gold for service. He joins the Navy in 2001. That's how we met. I'd already been in the Navy. He wanted to fly airplanes. I was getting ready to do that. He played college football. He just, he had a heart of gold. His mother was a nurse. She raised him and his sister without a father. And, and then things just didn't go right. There was an incident that happened at LA at, at Los Angeles police department uh, with him and another and his partner and things went, went sour. He, he reported what he saw. He tried to do the honest thing. And I remember being in court one time when he was going through a probation hearing where Chris had told the truth. And, and I felt that way. And there was stuff on video and on audio and, and, who would have known that years later, I mean, this is 2008 when he's going through all these issues with LAPD, they put him on probation. And then in 2009, this is where the story really takes a big turn. We had our first child and our child was born in December. And throughout all of 2009, Chris was kind of hit or miss. He'd talk to me maybe once a month and he would always bring up things like, Oh, I, I can't talk to you, man. I, I know LAPD's got you in their back pocket, just like my other friends. And they're trying to brainwash you not to like me and to lie against me. I said, Chris, I don't know what you're talking about. I have no contact with anybody. And so, you know, I'm, I'm a professor up at UC Berkeley at the time, getting ready to go to medical school. Um, this is back in 2009. And, and so then our daughter's born beginning of, uh, in December, beginning of the month, 2009. And about a week later, I was on a phone call with Chris and it was the last time I ever talked to him. And he said, Hey, I want to meet your daughter. I just, I don't know what to do right now. You know, people have ruined my name at LAPD and I can't find a new job now. And, and this is now four years before anything happens in 2013. The last contact, Sandy, that I ever had with Chris was in December 20, 2009. And now I'm in medical school. Fast forward 2013, finishing my third year of medical school, walking to class one morning around 6.37 o'clock in the morning. And I turn on my cell phone and it's got 50, 55 messages on it from all over. But most of them were news stations in the Los Angeles County area, CBS, NBC. Um, 
I got a call from Good Morning America, from Anderson Cooper, some of these big names that you hear about. Even if you don't watch the news, you may have heard about them. And and I don't I don't call any of them back, and the phone's still ringing. And then one of my good friends, John, he calls and says, "Hey, hey, Lisa, just saw you on TV." His wife. I said, "What are you talking about?" He's like, "Haven't you heard about Chris Dorner?" And Danny, I'm in Wisconsin. I'm not even in California for medical school, and I haven't spoken to Chris in four years at all, no contact. And the next thing you know, over the next several days, this huge event is happening in Los Angeles, California, where Chris is on this shooting spree going against people that he felt tarnished his name. And he happened to submit an online manifesto where he put a whole paragraph about me in the manifesto and about our friendship. And next thing you know, this for the next week of my life from February 7th to February 13th, um, this just was a day after day battle of people trying to find Chris in Los Angeles and federal marshals coming to my home in Wisconsin, pulling my wife out of a swimming pool, looking for me while I was in class. And uh, I'll, I'll leave the other details, but the story hits me because this was a great man that was trying to do great things and, and life went a different course. And, and it's, I've gotten a lot of questions through the years about like, well, how, how was it any different in 2006, 2005, 2004, when you were really close with him to what happened in 2013? And, and I can't explain it. People change. Uh, it's the saddest thing that one of the saddest events that's ever happened in my life because I lost a guy that was supposed to be a best man in my wedding that was supposed to be there as an uncle for my children. And, um, and he's not here anymore. And, and so I, I talk about that for, uh, and the reason it's in the book is not about what he did or if he was wrong or right. Cause he was definitely wrong in what he did, but it's finding your why and your purpose. And, and really what happened was Chris lost sense of what his why was. And that's why I share that story. And I think readers will find it compelling. I assure you, readers will find it compelling. I'm sitting here um, just struck at so many levels, just personally, um, how sad and how much grief and hurt that might be to have a, a best friend take such a different path. And then also here right now, real time, observing how you probably still have peers. You know, if we look at the literature about how people are feeling um, ruined or scared or, or just emotionally trapped or financially trapped. And so for you to have had that real life experience already um, sounds just incredibly painful and pivotal in terms of who you are and the work you do today. I want to thank you for sharing that story. Well, I love how you, I, I love how you said that. So you saying pivotal is a, is a great word because I, I talk about that, you know, about being able to pivot in life mm -hmm. and you might be stuck in one situation, but you know, as I learned in basketball, my favorite sport is you've got to be able to use that pivot foot and turn it in a different direction. And any of us can do that. And right now in COVID-19 pandemic history of 2020, this is a great time for all of us to think about where we are and to possibly make a couple pivots in the right direction. Definitely. So let's, I so appreciate your willingness to talk about hard things. So let's talk about another one that might be hard and how pivot might be related. So as I think about physicians, some of them historically were feeling trapped because of school debt or because of their lifestyle. Now physicians may be concerned financially about furlough. Talk to us a bit about for physicians who maybe have felt financial fears or financially trapped, as you think about that whole notion of pivoting and designing your future, refocusing your priorities, what kinds of advice do you have for people feeling that way? Well, I think what happens to a lot of physicians, and maybe I'm blessed because of the way I grew up and not having much and also being a, 
a military physician. So living way below, you know, I would say living below your means, or as my dad used to say to me, you know, it's not how much you make, it's how much you spend. And I think this is a great time to really refocus that. You brought up a great point about physicians having debt and um, physicians not figuring, you know, figuring out, hey, I might lose my job. I mean, there's been a lot of doctors not working recently, even though a lot of other doctors are working. But in, in this time of unease, people are trying to figure things out. And I think you really do have to recalibrate. I think you have to look at what your lifestyle is like. And if anything, over the last four to six weeks, for most of us that have been sheltered in place for this time, think about what you've really needed. And, you know, this is a great example. You're, if you've been stuck at home for a month or more, especially like in California or New York, you realize you're not using your car as much. And, and it's a great example that it's not really the car that you drive that makes you who you are. I mean, you brought this up earlier about me, and I've been open about it like an open book forever. I did. I lived in my truck, a 30-year-old pickup truck, a Chevy with not many miles on it, rust pieces falling off of it. And that truck has meant everything to me in my life because, number one, there's been no payments on it. And number two, it, it got me from one place to another. And so I think using an example of like a car, what you drive is great for a lot of us because a lot of people get caught up in the, the fashion statement. And right now, fashion statements, unless you're an Instagram model, don't really matter because you're at home either doing your work or you're going to essential businesses only. And so I think taking a deep look at like what, what do we choose to invest our time, our energy, our money into? And it is, it's a great way. And that's why I wrote the book was to help people kind of reset priorities. And especially with the colleagues I have now looking at the landscape of healthcare workers, um, where, where can we really serve our purpose best? And it's not really about what we can attain through material things. I mean, it's, that's talked about all the time, but it's not material possessions that matter. And it's truly not. Now has been a great time to reflect on the things that do matter of getting on a phone call and calling a friend you haven't talked to for a while or sitting down and writing a personal note to someone because those are things no one does anymore. Everybody text messages now or, or sends an email. And so, you know, I think it, it helps you just, there, there's so many things, Sandy, that I, I could talk with you forever about. Mm -hmm. I love it. I love your passion. I love your energy around that. Let me ask a quick logistical question. Do you have a hard stop here in a couple minutes or can you go a few minutes past? No. I'm good. Okay, good. You got me. Awesome. All right. So as I'm listening to you, I'm thinking about, you talk a lot in your book about how growth allows us to stretch and expand. We're in such an incredible, fertile place right now in terms of stretching and expanding. So I want to talk a bit about um, this whole notion of how people might be understressed and overstressed at the same time. Yeah, that's great. So specifically, I'm thinking about physicians who are managing a whole lot of complexity right now with the pandemic. Then they go home and some of them are a substitute teacher for their kids who are being homeschooled. Some of them are experiencing how the relationship with their spouse is really changing. Either, you know, they're going home and their spouse wants to talk about COVID, they don't, or there's just changes in energy. Some physicians are single parents and they're going home and they have a whole new set of routines that they're juggling. And people are just experiencing different levels of what I might call understressed, overstressed. I like that. What are some recommendations you would make to those people? No, I, I like how you say that because I actually, <laughs> I had this conversation the other day with some people I work with because I, I feel like a lot of us are in that right now. I mean, I'm, I'm living it myself where there's moments where like, oh, I, I feel like I can get everything done. And then there's moments where it comes crashing down and there's moments that are quiet and you're like, why, why is it all piling on at once? Why couldn't this be spread out evenly? And so 
I think it goes back to those routines we established before any of this happened the last couple months. Mm. And so your health and wellness, you know, I, there's a point, you know, I talk about if we reflect back to the book for a second about chapter one, where it's got to be about you. It, it was hard for me to write it like that because I don't believe I've ever been a conceited type person where it's about me. It's about me. The reason I look at that and why I want to bring that up now as we talk about what you just posed is it has to be about you. You've got to take care of your own health or you can't help anyone else and you can't mitigate your stress. And that's where burnout happens. And that's where you do start to lose touch with your family members at home or family members that you haven't seen in a while, especially when you can get so caught up in the work that is being done right now, especially in a lot of hospitals around high dense areas where people are really sick right now. And so I I do think those routines it comes back to is keeping yourself as active as you can in terms of, let's say you can't go to the gym and your, your routine is to go to the gym every day. You've got to find a way to make your routine, your gym time at home. And whether that's on your back patio, if you live somewhere where it's warm right now, going for a run outside, whether it's warm or cold, doing 10 minutes of calisthenics, uh, going back to other routines, like where I prep my food every day the night before and having your lunch already made because it can get, it can get tiresome where you're like, well, I didn't really pack lunch today, so I'm just going to snack on this. Or if you're in the hospital setting or wherever you work and you can go to the snack bar and get that, it's now you're losing track of those things that are going to make you uh, be your best or perform at your A game. And so I think coming up with rituals about meditation and taking, and it doesn't have to take long. For instance, I think I saw something the other day that Headspace, one of those calming meditation type apps is offering like free through the rest of 2020 for healthcare workers. I mean, that's a great tool for a lot of people. And I'll be honest and vulnerable up front. I never used it. I do a lot of personal meditation, but the other day I looked into it and I was like, why? It can't hurt to try it. And some of these are one minute long where it kind of just resets you or maybe having music playing in your office while you're doing charts and reviewing patient notes and, and the wonders of what classical music can actually do for the mind and the soul. And so I think finding those routines that actually help you achieve what you need to get done, because then when you are stressed, you won't feel as stressed. And when you're under stressed, you'll, fe- you'll understand that those are the moments where you can kind of reset, recalibrate and get back to who you are. And, and, and for all of us, we're all kind of in this tailspin right now, trying to figure out which direction we need to go. I'm loving it. I think about how, oh, there's such a mindset about, um, you know, it's selfish to take care of ourselves. I love that you actually said real directly, you've got to take care of you. And then you just bulleted out a whole list of specific concrete things any of us could start today, whether it's packing our lunch, going out on the back patio, listen to classical music, or pay attention to our routines. Those are great tips. I appreciate it. Another thing you talked about throughout the book is this whole notion of how people um, can grow and allow for something bigger. That is so good. Talk to us a bit more. What, what does that mean to you when you talk about grow and allow for something bigger? Yeah. So my big point of that, and I really believe this, I feel like there is no, there is no finalization or end point of success. I truly believe this and people think I'm crazy. I really believe we can get better every single day. And and you have to break that down. It's not better as a whole person. It's something that you do. I can get better at the way I talk to my children. I can get better about devoting a a few more minutes every night 
with my wife and talking about how her day was and what her goals and aspirations are. I can get better by the way that I interact with my colleagues at work. I can get better at the gym. I can get better with how I eat. I mean, the list goes on and on. And so I really do believe that. And then what that transforms into is doing something bigger than yourself or achieving something greater. And, and what I mean, and, and this is no knock on any other physician out there or anybody else, but for me, like I don't have diplomas up on my walls. It's just who I am. I, I don't have those up. I've never had one up. I have a picture of Abraham Lincoln behind me at my desk at work. I, you know, everything is in a box in my closet and it's just a part of, I think of how I was, how I was uh, created and, and kind of how my life story goes. But, um, for me, that allows me to keep trying to strive for more. I've never seen success as this endpoint. I mean, right now I'm looking at, hey, what do I want to dive into this year? Am I going to get another degree? Do I want to try and, you know, read this many books on this topic or get certified in something else that has nothing to do with medicine? And then those things will allow me to do something bigger. And so what I mean fully by that is on a grander scale is like, how can I affect even more people. So for instance, I'll go back to the, the company I've been working with called SteadyMD.com and how it's a telehealth company. And, and obviously I'm in the military. The SteadyMD thing is a side project. But right now it, it's kind of got this platform where it's tailored to certain people that can actually afford to pay $99 or $150 a month to have this extra doctor on their team. And it's a great service. I mean, you get to do Zoom videos, you get to chat with your doctor 24-7, but my idea is how do we open this to people who simply can't afford $99 a month? What if they can only afford $10 or $15? And so I share this with the CEO in this outline I created because I said, if that's your vision, boss, then how about people who are diabetics who can't even afford their medication or have thyroid disease or have heart disease? We've got to find a way that maybe they can have a 10-minute chat with a doctor once a month, but it only costs them $15 a month. And so looking at a grander scale, because to me, now I'm doing something way bigger than myself. I'm actually not looking at the success that comes for me or my family, but I want to have, I want to help everyone that I can touch in my life be more successful. And so, and there's so many ways you can do that. I had a student of mine who was at Stanford University when I taught ROTC many years ago, who became a naval officer. He got out. Now he works for a big company. And one of his dreams is he wants to help the 1 million poorest people across the world who don't have electricity get electricity. And he's a nuclear engineer, so he might be able to do that. But that was one of his goals. And that's, I mean, it doesn't get much bigger than <laughs> thinking like that. And you have to think outside the box. And, you know, I don't like when people say, oh, you could never do that. You don't come from anything. You don't have the money to do that. If you look at these companies and you look at what people have done, I mean, so many people have come from such humbled beginnings that are now doing things to empower the globe. I mean, it's it's pretty fa fascinating. I am just kind of knitting something together right now as I'm listening to you. I'm thinking about your whole directive about you've got to invest in yourself first. And what I'm sensing is that when people intentionally do that and they really gather inputs from different sources, it can almost fuel their passion. It can fuel their strength. That becomes part of the process, as you talk about, to really do something bigger. I just put that all together as I was hearing your story and it's so good. Talk to us about um, something else that you think is really important for physicians to keep in mind as they reconnect to meaningful work, reconnect to a purposeful life and reconnect to really allowing for that something bigger to emerge. What else is important for physicians to keep in mind? 
Well, I think, you know, we talked about this before, Sandy, you and I, and just conversation. And I think I, I love it. And I know you know that I, I love this already, but this whole accountability thing, it, it just, it crosses my path every day because I think that's where I think physicians will really, really do well if they can realize what it is they're after. And we all went into medicine for different reasons, I would say, little bits. But overall, there's still a common theme that we want to serve others. And, and I've never, I don't know, I just, nothing's ever touched me the same way about being able to serve the way that I can as a physician, because it allows people to be their most vulnerable. People look at physicians as almost an extension of their own family, like where they feel like they can talk and share and open up about everything. And so I think that if we can remember the accountability perspective on our accountability to our patients, to ourselves, to our family, our friends, our colleagues, and that we, we do allow ourselves to become vulnerable in that accountability, that we open up and know that we can't do everything on our own, that we're going to make mistakes, we're going to fail, and that as long as we communicate and we share our emotions with others, because that's okay, people want us to ask for help. I think that's, I just think that that's the golden ticket on how we're going to succeed or else we're going to go down past a burnout. We're going to get so frustrated in our work that nothing, nothing will even feel, I mean, we won't feel happy. We're going to have times where it's just like, we won't want to get up in the morning and go to work because we lose sense of what our why and our purpose are. And so, you know, I, I try to put a couple things into there at once, but to kind of recap that, the vulnerability, the accountability, and really making them work so that we can actually achieve those things that got us on this path in the first place. That's amazing. Amazing. As I start putting this together in my own mind, my own heart, I'm really struck how you, you talk about in your book and in our conversation today, you've got to invest in yourself first. As counterintuitive as that is, you've got to invest in yourself first. And from that place, I've heard you really invite people essentially to, to take this time and, and get real about refocusing priorities really engage the imagination to, um, as you talked about, Jake, you know, redesign the life that you desire. And then this is crazy, the way you really put together accountability with vulnerability, really marrying those two in a unique way that sets people up to connect to that something bigger. I love the way you're putting these together. I love the way you write your book. I want to be um, really put a big plug for that. It's exceptional every day, an empowering process to unlock your why and transform your life. Talk to us a little bit more about um, where people can get your book and what else you'd like to say in closing. Yeah, awesome. Hey, I'm, I'm just really thankful for you, for your listeners, for Dr. Greenwald, for connecting us. I mean, the work that he's doing on a national level to help physicians like myself and others and everyone in the healthcare industry to, to be more accountable, to be more vulnerable, to rely on others and, and to share. And so um, for my book, you can find it pretty much anywhere. Amazon's got the Kindle, the hardcover. Uh, you can go to Barnes & Noble. You can go to my personal website, which is just jasonvalideo.com. And on the website, you can actually get a copy from me that I'll write a message for you or a loved one or a colleague, a personal message. And, and those are pretty much the best ways to get it. I mean, I appreciate the support. I never went into this. And this is the God's honest truth. I even told the publisher this on day one. And they kind of looked at me and shook their head because obviously publishers want to sell books. But I said, I don't even care if I sell a book. I went into this to create a legacy so that my children would know that their dad was trying to do something bigger than himself. 
And I've got two little girls that see me every day. They both actually took, we got a box of books sent to us recently and they each took a book out of the box and put it on their desk. It was pretty funny. They're 10 and eight. And so uh, I was like, what are you guys doing? Those are my books. And they're like, no, they're ours now, dad. And so, um, you know, I never did. I didn't go into this to sell a single book. And recently I, I did a plug through my blog on Facebook and Instagram where um, on April 1st, we did a deal of the day on Amazon that we got selected for. And the goal was for every book that sold, it was like a 99 cent deal for every book that sold. I would time multiply that sale by 10 and donate that to a COVID relief fund. And what did you know? We actually became like an Amazon bestseller that day. So it was mm-hmm. pretty cool. Um, and, and that's not what I've ever been after. I mean, you would still not even know that. I mean, I, I try to share the stories from the book, I never tell people to buy the book, but I know, you know, as an author, you, you should sell your books. Um, but yeah, and I think it, it continues the story and you can get free downloadable things from my website as well that that go with the book, some process outlines that you can draw and write. And the only other thing I'd say that we didn't really cover that may inspire someone to want to pick up a copy is the fact that at the end of every chapter, I do these reflection questions to really help the reader dig into their own life, to really think about their priorities and to just do a, a full reset. Uh, I was writing up a blog today that'll come out in a couple of weeks, but this COVID-19 thing has really caused a national or a world reset that we've never had because it put us on pause in so many ways. And so I think my book, even though it came out a year ago, it's I think it's doing more now than it did a year ago because of the time that we're in, whether people have more time to read or people actually need to reset their priorities. Uh, I just, I'm blessed that I got to meet you and that I got to be on your podcast. It's a powerful invitation you just granted us, uh, recognizing the power of the pause and a world reset. I'm so grateful for our conversation today and look forward to connecting again.